You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We're going to be in Judges chapter 3 this morning, so if you have access to a Bible, if you'll turn there with me, we're going to start in verse 7 and we'll go through the end of the chapter uh, today. But just a, just a little recap for us as we're in this book. Here is a people who find themselves in the promised land, the land that God had promised them, and they are to be settling it. That's, that's what they've been instructed to do. Hey, I've given you this land. Now you are to settle it. And they find all excuses, all these excuses not to do exactly what God had told them to do. If you remember and you've been here with us, uh, you, you know that people got into the land and they said, hey, we're going to do everything that you told us to do, God, except some of the Canaanites have chariots of iron. We're, we're going to do everything you've told us to do, God, except, you know, these Canaanites just won't move. They won't, they won't leave, so we're just going to deal with them there. Hey, we're going to do everything that you've told us to do, God, but, you know, I know you told us to get rid of the Canaanites, but wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be to our economical advantage if, if we could just use them as labor? And so that's where the people of God find themselves. They, they have done as much as they want to do, but they've failed to obey God as he has instructed them to. So God gives them exactly what they want, what he said he would do. He gave them over to plunderers. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Throughout this book, God is going to raise up judge after judge to save his people. And as we saw last week, I wasn't with you, but Pastor Michael communicated these seven steps that we see over and over again um, throughout this book, the seven-step pattern or cycle. And so if you didn't get that last week, we see seven steps. First is that the people of God are going to rebel. Second, that God is going to become angry with his people. Third, the people are oppressed by their enemies. Fourth, they find themselves miserable. Fifth, there is salvation through God's chosen leader who is a judge. Sixth, there's peace in the land because of that judge. And then seventh, the judge dies. And the cycle seems to start over again. And so this morning, we have our first judge. But for the last two weeks, we've gotten a glimpse into why the Israelites are in the predicament that they are in. And we also uh, have a view into what the entire book is going to look like. That was in the past two chapters, but we're going to get into the actual storyline this morning. So this is where we begin to see that God uses what is weak in the world to accomplish his his purposes so that no one can boast in his presence. That's, that's what we're going to see in the three judges that we're looking at this morning. And the first cycle begins there in verse 7. Look there with me in the text. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, I shared with our Locust Grove congregation last week that when I started Bible college at Southern Seminary, we were in chapel one day, and the preacher kept saying this word, Baal, 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 and I finally leaned over to one of my friends, and I said, what is he talking about? 
And he said, uh, he said, Chris, that is what you Southerners call bail. Okay? So I've always heard my entire life that this is called bail. And I'm going to keep saying bail. Um, but if you would like to have a more accurate pronunciation with the Hebrew, you could say Baal. Okay? Now you know. Uh, I'm going to keep saying Baal. And uh, I, I, like, I like to keep it that way. But uh, more important than the pronunciation of Baal is that in the text we see our first judge. Uh, that, that cycle, the first step of the cycle is now complete. Now, the Israelites have rebelled. That's what the text says. They've, they've traded in God's way for their own way. And the text says that they forgot the Lord God. Now, we saw something similar in the text last week, chapter 2, verse 10, that there was a new generation of children who did not know the Lord or of the work that he had done for Israel. Now, now remember, it wasn't likely that the previous generation's parents had shared nothing, absolutely nothing about the Lord or about their faith or about what God had done on behalf of his people. It wasn't that they had shared nothing about that, although they probably didn't share as much as they should have. It's that this new generation simply disregarded what God had actually done. They never apprehended the truths about God for themselves. They, they, they never had the faith that their parents had. So it's not as though the Israelites had actual amnesia about their Lord. It's that they no longer wanted to act on what they knew to be true. Here's what I mean. Uh, imagine you run a stop sign. And a, a policeman sees you, he pulls you over, and as the cop is walking to your window, you say, man, I'm going to get ahead of this, okay? So you roll your, you roll your window down and you say, excuse me, officer, um, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to stop all the way. Now, did, did you actually forget to stop all the way? Did, did you not know that you were supposed to stop at that stop sign? No, you absolutely knew that you were supposed to stop at the stop sign. You just did not want to act on what you knew that you should do in that moment. Something began to be more important to you. We don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you thought that your time was more important than the stop sign at that moment, but you weren't acting on what you knew to be true, and that's what was going on with the Israelites. Though we know truths about God, we can very easily lose the sense upon our hearts of their reality, right? You find that to be true for you, people of God? That we, we know these great truths about who God is, and yet we fail to act upon them because we think that there's something more important for us, or we find ourselves wanting to give ourselves to something of what we think is greater importance. So the Israelites fail to remember, and then what happens? Verse 8, Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of, remember to give me grace, Kushan, Rishai, Thayim. And, and our writer in Judges is going to say that word over and over and over again today. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan, Rishai, Thayim eight years. Step two and three. God is angry and the people are oppressed by their enemies. Now, I, I want you to think about something. One of my favorite hymns, maybe this is true for you as well, is that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Anybody, 
Elsa really appreciate that. Man, I, I love to sing, great is thy faithfulness. It's so good. When I get to places in scripture like this, though, I have to remind myself that when we sing about the faithfulness of God, when we communicate to others and to ourselves about the faithfulness of God, it isn't just about God's kindness that we should have in mind when we're singing about his faithfulness. His faithfulness also means his chastisement. His, his faithfulness also means his righteous anger. Why, you say? Because God is faithful, absolutely. But his faithfulness to you and to me will not contradict what he has already communicated. It was said to the Israelites in Joshua chapter 23, we looked there a couple of weeks ago, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, what does the Lord God say? Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The Lord is faithful to his covenant promises. When we sing about the faithfulness of God, know that that is what we are singing about. He's going to keep his covenant regardless of his people's faithfulness. But that doesn't mean that it won't come without pain for his people. And here it goes on for eight long years, the text says, until verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, we're flying through the steps of the judge's cycle here in verse 9. The people are in misery, and so they cry out in repentance. And the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge for the people of Israel who saved them, and his name is Othniel. Now, the people are attempting to get by by doing their own thing still serving the pagan gods of those who have enslaved them for eight years until they cry out. Now, we may be tempted to only look at the way that God has dispensed his anger upon his own people, but the text is taking us further into, deeper into the very character and nature of God here, that in his anger, God also shows his people his tremendous mercy and grace. Think about it. If God had not given his people judgment in this moment, do you think that they would have ever noticed what was going on in their hearts? You think that they would have ever cried out at some point in their history, God, we, we need you. God, we, we need to know what is going on in our land. We need help. Now, a couple of things. It, it tells us about the depth in which deception can run within us. Like how, how much that we can be deceived ourselves, that God had to have his people physically enslaved so that they would see the judgment that they were actually facing. And also that in reality, that this judgment that was from the Lord was not just so we could look at it and say, man, God is just trying to get them back for what they had done. No, He's using it really as a means of redemption for his people because what does God always want from his people? God always wants fellowship with his children. And he'll use whatever means necessary in keeping with his character, in keeping with his covenant promises to do so. Let's not forget that. Disciple of Jesus, this isn't always an apples to apples situation. 
We, we can't just haphazardly apply the Israelite situation to ours, but we should and can consider its implications. And perhaps the difficult situation that you find yourself in isn't the direct anger of the Lord against you. But, but might we consider, might we pause and ask the Spirit of God when we find ourselves in difficult situations? Might we use those moments to pause and consider and ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts and to repent of any of our sinful ways? Would we as the people of God do that? Don't we have to at least consider for us as the church in this time, at this moment, are we in fact being given over to a society in praise of humanism over the word of God and the image of God? Could it be that we, the people of God, have long forgotten about the God who is faithful to keep his covenant promises and we actually have been walking in unrepentance? Could it be? Could it be that we have been given ourselves to worshiping the gods of this land? Could it be that we have been confusing, thinking that we have been walking in peace and prosperity and confusing that with the blessing of God when God has actually been using these things and God is using this moment to get his people to repent? So God's people repent. God sends Othniel who we saw earlier in chapter 1, when he was given to Caleb's daughter, Aksa, for a wife since he had attacked and captured Kiriath-Sefer. And here he is again, now serving as the God-ordained judge of Israel. Verse 10, look there in the text with me. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan, Rishath, Thaim. Bless the Lord. Not that this is a part of the judge's cycle, but it is important to note as we walk through the text that in the Old Testament, God would place his Holy Spirit upon certain individuals. But in the New Covenant, God has poured out his spirit his spirit on all of his children, the church. And so as God's people today, we are indwelt with his spirit. The spirit of God resides in us. The spirit of God helps us. He intercedes for us as we pray, the scripture tells us. He empowers us to be emboldened in our witness. He convicts us of sin and unrighteousness, and the Holy Spirit comforts us in our grief. But God's spirit here in the text this morning was on this one individual, Othniel. And the people were able to experience step six in verse 11. So the land had rest 40 years. Sadly, this judge won't last forever. It's a temporary fixed fix. In verse 11, Othniel, son of Kenaz, dies. And now the first judge's cycle is complete. Othniel, he seems like a good judge, right? Everything about him seemed great, but it can't last. That's the thing that we have to pick up on in the text. The peace will not last. God's people are going to need a leader who will not die. Revelation uh, 1.18 says, and this is who the people of God need, the one who says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Because in verse 12, Aphnael is dead 
and the cycle begins anew. Now, as we walk through this next judge, if you're taking notes or you're using anything to take notes, here's what I want you to do. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what's, what part of the cycle we're in. Just pick up on it. If you're, if you're circling in your Bible, just circle where you think that we are on the judge's cycle. Verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're going to go back and forth. I'll make some comments about this particular passage as we walk through it. But I, I warned you a couple of weeks ago that this book is graphic and it is wild. And we're going to get to one of those portions already, okay? We're, we're on the second judge, and it's about to get uh, rather graphic um, but, but there is a ton of irony in this particular account. So stay with me. And before we get to verse 13, I, I need to point out that we have seen God's hand in not just the helping of his people, but we've also seen God's hand in the harming of his people. God's hand is instrumental in the plundering, and God's hand is instrumental in the blessing. God is sovereign and I, of all people, know how difficult it is for me to wrap my finite brain, finite mind around that very truth that God is in control of all things, that, that nothing is outside of his control, but it is good for us and it is right for us to recognize this, that nothing is happening outside of his hand here in the text. And so we see that in verse 13, King Eglon gathers himself to the Ammonites and the Amalekites and defeats Israel. And they take possession of the city of Palms. Now, uh, just for participation's sake, does anybody know what city the city of Palms is? Anybody? I don't think you're supposed to know it, but I figured I'd try. The city of Palms is the city of Jericho. Now, can you feel the irony there? Because what had just happened not too long ago with the city of Jericho in taking the promised land that God had promised to his people, it was the first city to go. And it, and it wasn't one that had been taken by a great battle. No, God just told his people, if you would obey my commands, if you would just do these particular things, if you would just walk around, if you would just scream in a certain way, the city is going to just implode. And it did. And now all of a sudden, the city that God had given to his people, he's now taking it away. He had blessed them with victory because... They had obeyed what he said, but now he had taken it away because of their disobedience. And this time, it's worse. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, if you find yourself reading the book of Judges and you're doing some personal Bible study, okay, we're, we're always looking for particular phrases that just stick out to us. That's one that I would just say, and I'm going to circle that. Why in the world did the author say he was a left-handed man? And personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a little offended, okay? A any left-handed folks with me? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, a couple of us. I, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a left-handed man, but when I see that in the text of Scripture, it looks like this is a negative thing, doesn't it? Like, okay, what's, what's going on here? 
It's, it's not without tremendous difficulty that I communicate to you how difficult life has been as a left-handed man. I mean, we are the ones, after all, that can't use metal scissors, like kitchen scissors. And I need special scissors to be able to cut paper. I, I'm the one that spent 13 years in grade school with, like, pencil all over my hand. And then it just smeared all over my no notebook paper doing math that I already disliked. We're the ones that have to go to the golf course and already with a disadvantage like mine. I got to ask for different clubs. I got to get something different than every single other person. And now I, I know that some people say it's advantageous to be a left-handed baseball player. But not when I was playing t-ball. I showed up for t-ball. My coach did not know what to do. Now, it might have had to do with my personal ability, but I would like to say that he was just unnerved about me being left-handed. And so do you know today that I do not know how to bat left-handed? He made me bat as a right-handed man. Anyways, whatever stigma there is, and maybe now you're realizing how difficult my life has been, but whatever stigma there is about being left-handed today, I guarantee you there was a greater stigma about being a left-handed person in the culture that the author of Judges is writing to. And we don't, we don't know exactly what was going on with Ehud, but we do know that he was unable to use his right hand. He's unable to use it. People, people would have looked at Ehud and thought, man, there is absolutely no way that this guy can do any harm to anyone. No way. He can't use his right hand, and he's a left-handed man. There is absolutely no way that he is going to do any harm to anyone. So back in verse 15, here's what happens. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and What's going on here at this point in the text is that the people of God are having to pay some sort of tax to the king. They're having to pay a tax for living in the land, and so they're probably regularly taking these tributes to him. This is a, this is a normal thing. They're, they're having to send money or some kind of gift to the king. And Ehud, verse 16, made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, if you're right-handed, where you're going to put your knife is on this side for easy access. No one would have ever noticed by looking at this left-handed man who has no use of his right hand that he's going to have a weapon on the other side. So nobody would have noticed at all. They would have never checked. They would have not even looked for a weapon on that side of his body. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Also, another thing to circle in your Bible, okay? This is a, a very important part of the story. This is a part of the irony that the author is building. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Because think about it. The people of God 
who are living in the place that they had already been given by God are now being living live, are now living there as oppressed people, and they are having to pay tributes to a king that is not their own, and he is literally growing fat because of their tribute. And so that's why the text emphasizes his size. Verse 18, and when Ahud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. And just when it, when it looks like Ahud is chickening out, verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. Now, when there is a potential enemy in the king's presence, no one is ever going to leave the king's side. But because of who Ahud is, because of the type of man that he is, when people look at him, they think, man, there is absolutely no threat. When he says, hey, king, I have a, I have a secret message for you, the attendants just leave. They go out of the way. There's absolutely no threat here to the king. This guy is of pure weakness, they thought. Verse 20. And Ahud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ahud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ahud reached with his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. Verse 22, and the hilt also went in after the blade. And now, for the verse in the Bible that is probably going to be now for you more memorable than even John 3.16, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. You say, man, I have never read that in scriptures. <laughs> now you have. Verse 23, then Ahud went out into the porch and closed the doors over the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Now, why are they saying this? Because it smells terrible. Imagine what had just happened. And they waited there, verse 25, till they were embarrassed. Like our king is taking a really long time and it smells really bad in that room. What are we supposed to do? Like we're supposed to help this guy. That's our job. But this is just really awkward. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. 26, Ahud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. Now, I love that last phrase. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped. Think about it. Ahud, a left-handed man who the world would look at and say, he's nothing. He's a weak man. He is to be despised above all other people, had just killed the king of the Moabites. He had just killed King Eglon, who had been in charge and oppressing God's people for the last 18 years. And what does Ahud do? He walks right by the idols that every single person in the land had been worshiping and bowing down to. And what did the idols do? Nothing. 
Why? Because the idols of our society, the idols of the Israelites have no power. They can care for no one. They can give nothing. And so God's man walks right by the idols in victory because God uses even the weak to despise the strong. Verse 27, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. God uses what is weak in the world to accomplish his purposes so that no one can boast in his presence. And this is just as obvious in the third judge in which we see in only a verse. Look at verse 31 with me. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, This guy, we don't know exactly who he is, but it seems that he's a shepherd or a herder of some sort who carries an ox goad, which is basically just an eight-foot wooden pole that had a, a pointy end to it. And that's what Shamgar walks out and kills 600 of the Philistines with and thereby saving all of Israel. Not only was his instrument an instrument of weakness, one that was used to just keep sheep together, but his pedigree was as well. This man wasn't even an Israelite. Now, we don't see a seven-step cycle there. And I know I told you there was. But the premise is still the same. God uses what is weak in the world to accomplish his purposes so that no man, no woman can boast in his presence. As we conclude this morning, I I want us to consider three truths from the text. The first thing is this. God is less concerned with your ability than your availability. Now, we the people of God are often finding ourselves like Moses, aren't we? When Moses was first called by God for a a very important task to deliver his people out from the oppressive hand of Egypt, what did Moses do? He said, God, I, I can't do that. I can't speak very well. You should use another guy. You should use my brother Aaron. Or we find ourselves like Sarah, Abraham's wife, who had been barren her entire life, and she was really old when God said, you're gonna bear a child. And she laughed. We find ourselves often like those people. I was talking with a friend a couple of days ago, and he mentioned to me that he has never played the lottery before, but he always imagines what his life would look like if he had won the lottery. Anybody else there? Like, man, I I know exactly what I would do if I won the lottery. Now, he, he went on to explain to me as his pastor that he would be happy to pay the mortgage of the church off, but he didn't know exactly how, how else he should uh, distribute the funds. You know, I don't, I don't want to give too much more money because it might cripple the mission of the church. And I, I, I get that, you know, I get that. As long as you, as long as you pay the mortgage off of the church, you know, we're, we're okay. 
Now, don't, please don't take anything else about the lottery. I, I'm not giving any other practical advice about, anyways, just hear me out, okay? I just said, yeah, that'd be great, and it would. But, but I think that we're often under the assumption that if we had the resources like that of Elon Musk, or if we had the resources of like the, the individual who apparently yesterday I was told won a billion dollars from the Mega Millions, then we could really do something then to advance the kingdom of God, right? Man, if I had more resources than I currently have, I could do something really big for God. It would be so glorifying to him. And yet there is this little boy recorded in the gospels that had how many loaves of bread? Five. And how many fish? Two. And Jesus used it to feed 25,000 people. That was a little boy. Imagine what God could accomplish through his church that was open-handed to their seemingly meager resources. And our, our little church, just, just so you hear about what the resources that you have are doing, they're supporting missionaries around the world so that the gospel would be advanced not only from McDonough and Locust Grove, but that they would be advancing in Kenya and Prague, Romania. And we're begging God now after having uh, little meager resources to plant two additional churches. We're begging God, where would you have us to go next? Man, we, don't, we don't need a ton of people, God. We don't need a lot of resources, but where would you have us to go? Pastor Michael and I were meeting with uh, a, a local network of pastors this past week, and they had divided Georgia up into six regions. And we're, we find ourselves in the, the West Central region, according to how they had divided the state up. And they found that the zip code right north of us, 30281, that is Stockbridge, is the least evangelized city in all of our region. What if we say, God, we don't have much. God, we don't even have the people that we used to have a few months ago. But what if we said we're available? Send us. Are your resources available for the Lord to use them? Are you holding them, however small or large they may be, with an open hand? Remember, Christian, God has indwelt you with his Holy Spirit. You have the same spirit that Othniel was given always. And the Spirit of God has empowered you, 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 with particular gifts in order to build up the body. You have unique gifts that are to be used in this church for God's purposes. So the question that you must ask yourself is, what has God told you to do? You say, no, you know, Chris and some of the other pastors and some of our deacons or some particular women in this church have been gifted in ways that are to be used by God. No, if you are a Christian, you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit and he has sealed in you. Gifts, unique gifts that are for the encouragement and building up of our church. How are you to obey God with those gifts that he has given you? Who are you to be having conversations with? Who are you to be praying for? God is less concerned with your ability than your availability. Two, God answers our cries with undeserved grace and in unexpected ways. 
I want to tell you a little story just personally. There was this guy in the early 90s that got of a hold. He got a hold of a, a dummy and started playing around as a ventriloquist. And some of you may say, I, I have no idea what that is. Well, there's, it's like a puppet, and I guess you, you just sit it next to you, and the puppet looks like he's talking, and you're not using your voice. Now you know what a ventriloquist is. Well, you are using your voice, but your mouth isn't moving. It's weird. But this guy in the early 90s got a hold of one of those things, and he became a ventriloquist. And you think, man, a guy who gets a, gets a hold of a, a dummy is not going to be able to change anything in this world. That's an Ahood to me. But you know what he did? He started using this weird, strange gift that the Lord had given him, and he started sharing the gospel with that and through that dummy. I was about seven years old at the time. And I've been singing with the Atlanta Boy Choir. If you know anything about me, you know that that's a really big part of my life. Man, I had been singing with the Boy Choir for three years already, and I was going to go place with my soprano voice. I was excelling in first grade like any other first grader could possibly excel. And all I wanted to be in life was just better. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to have the best voice. I wanted to have the best grades. My heart's cry was, God, if you would just make me the best, I'll be the best. And I remember that kid. I remember how prideful I was as a seven-year-old. I want to be a better singer than everyone else, and I want to show everyone up. So how did the Lord answer that cry of desperation? Well, one night in 1991, that man with the really strange gift of sitting a dummy next to him and preaching the gospel came to my church, and God that night, through hearing about Christ and what he had done for sinners, gave me a new heart so that I could repent of my sins and trust in Christ Jesus by faith. God heard that cry of the Israelites, just get us out of this. We just want better conditions. We need a different king. We need new leadership. We need more comfort. If you would just give us more peace and stability, we will do more for you. We, and, and, and you know what God did with the groanings of the Israelites? He saved them. God heard the prideful cry of my heart, and he answered it with mercy. He took my desires for self-glory, and he exchanged it to give me desires for his glory. God answers our cries with undeserved grace and in unexpected ways. And finally, I want you to hear this as we close this morning. God deserves your remembrance of him. He deserves it. Just like the Israelites, God will either get you to remember him through pain or he'll get you to remember him through peace, but he will do it. The question that you and I face today is this, are you going to remember him now in this life or are you going to remember him and know him in the life to come? Because hear this, if you wait until the life that is to come to remember God, it will be. It will be, the scripture tells us, met with eternal judgment. You bearing for eternity the weight of your sin against a holy God. And at that day, 
There will be no merciful hand of God restraining his wrath any longer. But if you remember today, this is the good news of the gospel. This is why we as Christians have hope no matter the circumstance in this life. Because if you remember today the goodness of God, the kindness of God, what he's done for the sinner in Christ Jesus, and you repent of your sins today, it will be met with peace Peace with God because of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ Jesus, God's son, who bore God's wrath on behalf of every single person who would believe so that you could have life eternal. And if you've never repented of your sins today, man, I pray that that would be today. And if you're a Christian, God has given you a new heart God has indwelt you with his Holy Spirit, and we find ourselves needing to remember too. Remembering the faithfulness of God, remembering who he is, how he's delivered us from our sins, how he's taken those prideful hearts, those hearts that were seeking after idolatry, those hearts that were seeking after every pleasure this life could give us, and how he gave us new hearts with new desires, new passions to please him. We need to remember too. Because oftentimes, we quench the work that the Spirit is doing in our hearts. And we need to repent of our sins so that we could be in right fellowship with God. Remember, that's what he wants from his children. You, brother or sister, need to repent as well. As you remember this week, as you reflect on this passage, it's easy for us to find ourselves identifying with the judges themselves first. And they were weak after all, right? I mean, especially we look at Ehud and and think, man, nobody would have looked on him with any esteem. So we find ourselves identifying first with those people. And it is good to see ourselves as weak vessels open to be being used by a good and great God, right? That's certainly an implication of the text. But may we be mindful that we are not first to identify with the judges, but rather the Israelites. We are the people who continue over and over and over again to forget the goodness of God. We forget the mercy of God. We forget the grace of God, the kindness, and the faithfulness of our sovereign God. And we're the ones who turn to idols, who can do nothing, remember, who care for us in no way, who love us in no way. And we turn to those idols of pleasure and comfort, to money, sex, and power, don't we? And we're the ones who take advantage of peace and we whine about unrest. We're the ones who cry out for relief. And we're the ones to whom God has given in his mercy a rescuer who always lives to intercede on our behalf at the right hand of the God most high. And this rescuer, Jesus Christ, is one who came in tremendous weakness, who had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, the Bible says. One who has despised, has been despised, and rejected by men. He didn't come with power, but he came with humility. We may not find him the wisdom, we may not find in him the wisdom of the world, but certainly we see the power and the wisdom of God as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 earlier this morning. 
And so would we, as the people of God, as we find ourselves in communion with one another this week, in life groups, in DNA groups, as we come back to the Sunday gathering next Sunday, would we be quick to remind each other about who God is? the rescuer that he has sent us in Christ Jesus? Would we be quick to spend time in the Holy Scriptures that God has preserved for his people so that we could remember him? May we spend time with others in the body. And would we now, in just a moment, remember Christ through communion? God uses what is weak in this world to accomplish his purposes so that no one can boast in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a time this morning, however short or however long, that we could hear about who you are, your character and your nature towards your people, that it is always always in keeping and accordance with your covenant promises, that you are always faithful to your people. Whether you are chastising us so that we might repent of our sins or whether you are showing us tremendous peace and prosperity, but that you are always faithful to your people. Would we remember that? God, I pray as your people this morning who are indwelt with your Holy Spirit, that we would be quick to recognize the gifts that you've given us for the good of your church, that we would be open-handed with our resources, with our time, and with those spirit-given and enabled gifts. That we would be quick to remember you and what you have done for us in your son, Christ Jesus. And that we would be quick to remember that you use what is weak in this world to accomplish your great purposes so that no one, no one, no man, no woman, no child is able to boast in your presence. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray.